bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Today, we will discuss special education and special needs but with a twist, and you'll hear from our guests here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. In Pennsylvania, a teenage girl that was about to turn 18 was driving her brand new car home when she looked down to check a text message and struck a tree, killing herself and injuring a friend in the car. The average message takes 4.6 seconds to create. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. Please don't drive while intoxicated or allow your friends and family to do so. No text message or phone call is worth dying for. Find Mike Bryant at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Mike Bryant, seeking justice for the injured. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Today, as I stated earlier, we would be discussing uh, special education, but with a twist. <clears throat> uh, excuse my voice there. And today I want to bring on Stephen Flynn, who is a music teacher, but is a music, music teacher with a special calling. And I'd like to welcome Stephen to the pro, uh, program. How are you doing today? Great, JB. Thanks for having me on your program. Not a problem. So you're, you're a teacher and you're in special ed. How long have you been teaching before we get to the very special part of what you do? Sure. I started teaching in 1989. And for just about the last 20 years, I've primarily focused in on teaching um, using rhythms in the piano uh, to intellectually and physically challenge children, teens, and adults. Okay. And that's been my primary passion for like almost 20 years now. So, and I'm, no, go ahead. And I'm, also, and I'm also one of the few uh, teachers in the country who specializes in teaching the drum set to autistic uh, students as well. And, I, I, and so I have students all over the country that I teach that to um, as well as the piano and using rhythms. The rhythms I use for cognitive development, and we work on academic concepts, positive communication, and social skills. Okay. And, and that, so that's, in, in a, that's the umbrella under which I'm working. All right. Before we get deeper into all of that, uh, where did you grow up, and how did you get into music? Well, I grew up in Seattle, and I started playing drums in about, I got I was about before I even got to high school. Okay. And I was really passionate about it. And uh, 
I've been playing music ever since. I, I think I've made like maybe 40 records so oh. far. And uh, I still perform a lot. I, I, I live in New York City, um, but I, these days I've been performing more in Europe than I am actually in America. Is there a certain genre of music that you... Well, we, when I was a kid coming up, I played in rock bands. Okay. And, and then uh, in the early 80s, I switched to straight-ahead jazz, and I did that for about 10 years. And then I now I moved I moved even further kind of left of center I'm, I'm kind of involved in new music, um, which is you know for a lot of people a little bit too abstract, but uh, that's that's kind of the area that I work in today as far as music. So, so I've kind of got I've kind of done a little bit yeah. of everything. No, that's yeah. fine. Uh, so uh, what what was it that got you into music was just listening to stuff on the radio you had a parent uh, that was into it or well yeah I, I came i come from a musical family but what really did it was i think i was 13 and i went to see thin lizzy in seattle okay. and it was, I think it was one of their first tours and i was just so blown away by the whole you know production and everything on top of the music the music was amazing and uh, that's really when I decided, God, I really want to do that. And were your parents music teachers or they were just performers? No, no. Um, but uh, uh, my mom's family was pretty musical. And my dad, um, he came from a real musical family. Um, his mother was an opera singer and, and two of his sisters were singers. And he was really into music, although he wasn't a musician himself, my dad. But um, he... Uh, at one time, this is kind of an interesting story, he booked the Duke Ellington Orchestra in Montana. Oh, okay. He got, he got them to reroute their tour and right. come play in Montana. And then they, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, they asked my dad to come to work with them. But, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't choose to do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Y you and I have kind of similar backgrounds. My, my dad always filled the house with music, uh, uh, you know, vinyl records to, you know, a very expansive collection, which is still in the family to this day. Um, my parents have since passed, but uh, he had stuff from 1903 jazz to, you know, to the time he left us. He was still uh, loading MP3s to play for people at the park or in St. Louis or whatever. But, oh, really? Yeah, he was a, I called, for lack of a better term, I call him a party DJ. He would do... Um, parties. He was a laborer by week. He worked in a factory, but on uh -huh. weekends he would uh, do, uh, you know, bars and clubs and uh, private parties. And he would, you know, people would hire him to uh, show up with the, his records and he would tailor his records for his crowd. You know, he knew where he was going and um, he would take those the stuff that would probably hit that night and play. And um, so there was always music in the house for us, you know, different, you know, like I said, jazz, um, soul, R&B, rap, uh, rock, even some, uh, even some Christian, and uh -huh. even a little country would sneak in there every once in a while. But um so I would gather that you were probably having the same similar experience. My eldest brother was a real audiophile, and he would take his paper out money 
I mean, when we were really young, and I remember we would buy used records, and he would buy a stack of records every week. And so to the right now, my oldest brother, I think he has like 3,000 records, vinyl. Yeah. So my brother was actually my biggest influence because he was buying so many records and uh, all kinds of rap music that I would not have been exposed to. I mean, I remember being really young and he would come home with these John Coltrane records and I, you know, I didn't really get it at the time, Right. but I, I was exposed to it and he, he had a real, uh, real, real uh, wide palette of records like your dad as well. So uh, I would assume that you went to college. Where did you go to uh, college? Um, I actually, I was a high school dropout okay. and uh, I went to play in bands and then I actually went and got a humanities degree later on in life in my early thirties. Yeah, where was that? That was in Seattle. I went back to Seattle. Okay. But in, in between that time, I lived in Dublin, Ireland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Um, what were you doing during those years? Um, well, in the early 80s, I was 21 years old, I moved to Dublin, Ireland, and I worked in radio. And I worked for what at the time were called pirate radio stations. And I don't know if, if you ever, you know, read or um, or heard of, you know, the Radio Caroline that was, you know, uh, off the, in the ocean right outside, you know, outside of England. They would play the records that everyone listened to in England. Right. And when 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 that when Radio Caroline closed down, a lot of those guys went to Dublin. And, well, two of them in particular, and they opened up these radio stations. And because of outdated laws in Ireland, they were technically illegal. Even though at the time when I was working for them. The two years I was there, they were making more money than the government RTE station. And uh, so then, yeah, then I, that, that was later on. But, you know, I played in bands in, in California and, uh, you know, moved to Ireland and then came back to Seattle. And around, I, that was actually I was still in my 20s at that point. And I went and played music around the country. I mean, it's kind of, I've kind of lived a nomadic life. Right. So it's kind of hard for me to even keep track of where <laughs> I've been living. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but, um, you know, music has always been the thread throughout my life, basically. Well, that story yeah. you told about the the uh, pirate radio. Right. I worked in classic, um, not classical, but classic rock. Uh, that was the station I worked at uh, for 22 years in, in Minneapolis at KQRS. And so I've heard that story probably five different times from five different musicians really from from europe yeah because that's you know that's where the how they got exposed to it was listening to you know you would hear that even people like the beatles were like exposed to music in that form and whatnot and other uh people who came over and become great artists in in the u.s but yeah it's not a it's not a foreign story to me well, I think uh, from what I can tell, uh, in the 60s and 70s, the BBC was pretty conservative. Correct. And they didn't have a lot of rock on the radio then. And I think, I think what Radio Caroline did is Radio Caroline kind of filled that void. Right. And it, yeah. it, um, because it you know, introduced like R&B music and soul music to people to, uh, like um, uh, the, uh, the Lead singer of the and I'm blanking his mind of the Rolling Stones, and yeah, Mick Jagger, Mick yeah. Jagger, and uh, Keith Richards, and those people they were able to um, 
hear that music and fall in love with it and then want to perform it. And um, so, yeah, it's a story that um, I'm very familiar with. So after you kind of, you know, get through your uh, nomadic days, as you stated, um, what made you think about, I need to go back and get my education and possibly teach? Um, well, actually, I didn't go back to school to learn how to teach. I just decided that I was going to go back to school. I felt that was something I needed to do. And uh, so that, that was kind of, I didn't really have a game plan. Um, so th that's kind of how I ended up in school. I just, I, I just decided it was something I wanted. I wanted to just develop my person. So uh, that's how I went back to school. But um, – what happened was in terms of uh, this uh, and, and, and then eventually, actually, after I went back to school, I went and ran music studios in, in San Francisco. I ran uh, three buildings of rehearsal studios, 90 studios. I did that for a number of years. But what happened were really what got me on the, the path of, of being and I was teaching drum set at that time to neurotypical uh, students. But mm -hmm. what happened was and move forward uh, to 2000 and and. You know, in early 2000s, I, I, I did a solo percussion tour and I did the, a tour. I did solo concerts from San Francisco to New York City. And, uh, with, you know, I shaved my head. Um, I, I've shaved my head ever since I was a forest monk. I was I was a forest monk in Thailand. And I was before right about four months before I went to do the tour. This is kind of a funny story. I was looking at this shaving cream I had made by this company called Headblade, yeah. and a light bulb went off in my head, and I wrote a letter to the company, and two weeks later, the owner, the owner of the company called me and said, this is great, and they sponsored my whole tour oh. from San Francisco to New York City and back. But when I was on the tour, um, I played in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There's an organization there, the Shaken Ray Levi Society, and they've been very involved in, in – uh, promoting concerts and, and workshops and such. And uh, they booked me for a concert and a workshop, a drum workshop. And after the workshop, the guy who's uh, Bob Stagner's um, runs the organization. He said, you know, I think you'd be really good at doing this protocol for special needs. And, and it had never been really anything that had been on my radar before. So when I, at the end of the tour, I called up the guy who ran the organization, Eddie Taduri. I said, I'm interested in doing this. And he said, well, look, I suggest you volunteer for six months and then call me back. And what he told me later is most people never do the volunteer work. I, I, I made calls the next day. I started volunteering for six months at a place called The Ark in San Francisco. And then I started teaching. And that's – so uh, my – you know, I, I don't have a degree in uh, music therapy or anything of that nature. And uh, – but I, I think I'm an empath, you know, I have a lot of empathy and, and it, it's just been a learning process uh, ever since then. And uh, I, I think my, my background from teaching the drums helped um, in terms of how to explain things in a chronological fashion. But, uh, you know, it, it just, I learned by doing. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job uh, through a nonprofit teaching in um, Lanterman High School in Los Angeles, and I taught there for four years, and that's one of the large. I think I believe it's the largest special needs high school on the West Coast, and that was like my master's training because 
uh, you know, I worked there for four years. I did three ensembles a day. And so um, I got very adept at working, you know, because the spectrum, the autism spectrum, well, I, I didn't just have autistic students, but mm-hmm. spectrums are very wide. Right. And so I, ha- I learned from working at that school how to adjust very quickly to where a person, you know, is on the spectrum, how impacted they are, and still challenge them. And so that that really was um, just so inspirational. You know, when I was working there, it was, they. you know, I really felt like, these students were a power of example to me, so many of them, because in the four years that I worked there, I never heard one student really complain about anything. And I had some students there with real serious health challenges, you know, that were missing limbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them uh, weren't able to chew food and they had a lot of really intense surgeries and they never complained about anything. So that whole experience in the four years I was at that high school was just really life-changing. That kind of uh, developed my passion for working with this population. And right now, today, um, I primarily, you know, I teach primarily online. Um, I have students all over the country that I teach online. And just earlier today, I did a, uh, I don't do groups that often. I, I did a group for this organization and it was really so inspiring because I had students in Wales, I had a student in Dublin, and I had students all over the country, you know, so like right. the, the Zoom thing is just really opening up um, a lot of uh, opportunities for certain students who are isolated in smaller communities around the country or other countries that they didn't have available to them. In our emails to each other, I, I told you that I had worked with uh, aut- a couple of autistic kids in Minneapolis. I was a paraprofessional and I worked in the classrooms, and um, to help mainstream these two young men. And the school itself was a place for um, people who, some people had brain injuries, some people may had um, uh, special special education needs, and some really had some deep special education needs. And uh, the first young man I uh, worked with. He was in the fifth grade, but he was almost six feet tall. It, he was almost six feet tall and almost 300 pounds. And um, they needed somebody who could kind of wrangle him in because he would get flustered and um, act out and uncontrollably. And the second one I had was he was nonverbal. Um, he couldn't hold a pencil, but he was smart as... Uh, one of the smarter kids that I've known. And that's when I uh-huh. kind of learned that autism has that spectrum of, you know, very high functioning to very low functioning. And, um, but one of the things that helped with both was music therapy. They would, uh, there was a, uh, upper level of the school that dealt with the brain and they would put on headphones and listen to music, but also they would put sensors on their heads and they would try to do things like manipulate the screen or um, work math problems or do different things by just using their brain. So it was uh, very interesting for me to see that. 
but like I said, music played a, bi a big part because the music was always in the background for them when they were going through that therapy, and it was really relaxing and really. When they would come out of that, they would be really relaxed and really focused, and and be able to uh, do those things. Well, how did you feel after working with them? Uh, I felt I did it for two and a half years, and it gave me a new perspective on special education. But not only that, it gave me a, a different perspective about myself to the point where I actually went and <laughs> was tested for autism. I actually went in myself because when I was uh -huh. a youth, I was, and it was different than the way it is now, but uh, I was tested for uh special education i'm a ch child of the 70s graduated from high school 1980 so back then it was you know if you were in if you found to have maybe and they and a lot of that they didn't know what it was they just knew that you learned differently uh -huh. that they put you in a slower track which uh my mother thankfully to her fought against and kept me in the mainstream classroom for the whole time. and um, But I always wondered, and then as an adult, I said, well, let me check into this because I just feel that I have something. And for me, it wasn't that I was autistic. I was just uh, a, a, had some attention issues. And, uh -huh. and, and then there were some other things that were going on that it was like, oh, all of this makes sense. But it, working with those two young men and uh, other autistic students really gave me a different perspective on life. Yeah, and you know, I've I, I, I talk to parents frequently who some you know they have autistic children and they get tested on them, themselves and sometimes they do find out that they are on the spectrum. You know, they might not be impacted that greatly, but they are on they're somewhere on the spectrum. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And I have a friend who's um, who's a coach of a college sport, and uh, her son is artistic, and he's highly functioning. He just passed his driver's test, but she was surprised when he was when we worked together. She was surprised that I actually figured out that he was autistic and it was it was one of the hardest questions I ever had to ask somebody but I said I don't want to sound like a jerk and I don't want to sound like you know just really terrible but is your son artistic by chance and she goes how did you pick up on that I said yeah I said I've worked in that field for a couple of years and you know you uh -huh. just start to pick up on that so because the, the one young man that i worked with that was very bright he couldn't hold a pencil so i would hold his hand to hold the pencil in his hand when he wrote and when he took and he actually took standard exams and mm -hmm. was a and one time i was somewhat accused of answering the questions for him and uh, they made him take the exam in front of two proctors. And within the first three questions, they ended the, the whole retest because he scored high. And because mm -hmm. they saw me like go to wrong answers and him jerk, almost jerked the pencil out of my hand to get to the correct answer. So um, I think that uh, gave some people who were 
called themselves educators, a different perspective at that point, too. Interesting you mentioned the fine motor skills, because I've had a number of students over the years who really wrestled with holding a pen or writing their name. Mm-hmm. And by working with them on the piano, they were able to develop those fine motor skills that they weren't able to normally you know, work on to the point where they could actually hold a pen. Yeah, because if you if you if you're playing a keyboard, it's not a watery keyboard that has some you know natural feel to it. Right, you have to work all of those uh, things, and and oftentimes you know the desire to play the note kind of just takes over. Also, oftentimes if the student hears the note, they'll they'll make it happen. Right. You yeah, know. his mother, um, God rest her soul. I mean, she's still alive, but God bless her. Um, she had three children, and all three were autistic. And the first child was is highly functioning, and um, uh, they were the, her and her husband at the time were told, you probably won't have another one, so if you want to continue to have more children, go ahead. And then they had the young man that I um, worked with, and... Again, an autistic child, uh, they classified semi-verbal, and, um, but he also suffered from epilepsy and some other things, and he, it was just a struggle to, like, for them to balance his magic, medication for him to be in school, to not, uh, not be zonked out, but also not have, like, uh, many or small seizures constantly through the day and whatnot. And then they had the third child because, again, the doctors said, well, your chances of this happening to a third child are astronomical. Well, guess what? It was the third child was uh, a girl, and she was nonverbal, and she was in her, she was on, you know, I don't, I don't know how to classify this, but she was less functioning than her uh, brother. More highly impacted. Right. More, more impacted, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, it was interesting just to be able to also witness that family. So, and their mother would do, their mother was a nurse, and she would do anything for those three kids as far as research and finding the latest um and this was in the early 2000s, uh, mm-hmm. finding different therapies for her children and whatnot. And she must not have come across your uh, stuff because she had, believe me, she would, she would have, she would have given it a chance. Uh huh. So, uh, you know, you just see parents out there; they're just they're willing to do anything and everything for their children. So. It's, uh, well, I, I, I spent, I mean, I've, I've been here in, in New York City for the last almost two years. And the four previous years, um, I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, Arizona is an incredibly progressive state uh, for special needs education and services, unlike, I think, any other state in the country. Really, they're really uh, uh, on top of it there. In fact, I would meet families who moved there from other international cities like Vancouver, Canada, because the services were so much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
the same thing is somewhat here in uh, Minnesota, in the Minneapolis-St. Uh-huh. Paul area. Um, you know, they're very deep into special education and, um, you know, mainstreaming as much as possible, but also knowing that some a lot of kids can't be, and they do a lot to meet those kids at the at the level that they are uh-huh. so so what do you do to motivate or challenge your students well the you know the first thing um i do um like you mentioned um nonverbal students i always refer to all of my students who um in that category is not yet verbal so when i'm working with someone who's not yet verbal I approach all of my students as if they can do the exercise. And because my exercises are multi-sensory in that um, they see the exercise, I hold it up for there's a visual, mm-hmm. they they hit the drum and then they say it with their voice and, and they hear it. So all the senses are involved. And if a student is not yet verbal, I will still prompt them and ask them to say it out loud, even if they are not there yet. But interestingly enough, I've had a number of students over the years who had never spoken who would start speaking. They, they, would, they would make inroads. I remember I had a kid in L.A., and uh, I'd been working with him for about three years. He'd never said a word. And uh, I, I, I said, okay, I had him play his name, and he would tap it. And then one day he said his name. He said, my name is Jose, and the whole room went quiet. So – you know, one thing, if there are any parents listening and their child is not yet verbal, you know, there's always hope that uh, eventually your child, you know, could start speaking again, you know, or uh, start speaking in, you know, at the initial stages of speaking. Right. But, you know, so that's one of the things. And the other, the other ways I motivate my students is I ask myself really good questions. Uh, if I find at any time during a lesson, that I am not giving a kid 120%, I ask myself the question, what can I do to make this the best lesson the student has ever had? That changes my direction and allows me to really you know, step up. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things that I do are um, to motivate my student is when I sit down with a student, I want to challenge them, but not overwhelm them. So I have to find that baseline. I always wanna be continuing to challenge them because one of the things I found, because I primarily work with autistic students, is they really want to be challenged. They don't want me to throw them softballs. Right. So that's something I, you know, and I, you know, I mentioned working at Lanterman for four years, and that's where I got, because of that work there, I was able to really learn how to do that, um, because I was doing it so intensely for that time period. Um, the other thing that I do to motivate them is I found that a very high percentage of my students will mirror me. They'll mirror my voice, they'll mirror my body language, things of that nature. And that's very effective in, in getting the student to give me, you know, I, I really expect a lot from my students. I want them to really, you know, if I don't think that they're saying the answer with enough intensity out loud, I will do it really loud out loud. And they, for most of the time, if it's appropriate, they will mirror me and then they'll put more behind it. Um, with some of my students that are limited verbal, um, for example, if we're working on an exercise, I might 
say the answer really loud and have them repeat it back, or I might say it really long in a long manner. Um, the other thing that I'll do that motivates them is I'm very big on positive reinforcement. Um, I think a lot of these students don't get a lot of that. I think they should get more. And so anytime a student does anything real, well, most of the, I don't want to do it repeatedly in an obvious manner, but I'd like to give a lot of positive uh, praise when, as soon as they do something really great. And that really, I think, provides a lot of motivation. I think, um, you know, as a teacher, uh, you know, my two, my, two of my main objectives are to motivate and uh, build confidence. So if I tell if a student does something really, you know, that they hadn't previously been able to do very well, and I shout at them, great, wonderful, super, way to go, mm -hmm. that builds their confidence and makes them want to do better. And who did I learn that from? I learned that from Ed Shaughnessy. He was the drummer on The Tonight Show for like, I don't know, 30, 40 years yes. with Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. I studied with Ed Shaughnessy for a year, every two weeks. And we would play the big band charts from The Tonight Show. That's what we did primarily on our lessons. And I practiced five hours a day, um, six days a week when I was studying with him. And I would come into those lessons really ready to play all the exercises and the tunes and everything. And he would shout, he would shout at me, he would jump up in the air, he would just get so animated. And I would get so excited when I left the lesson that I was like, I'm even going to do better next time. I'm even going to, I'm going to really blow his mind. Right. And, you know, and there was a few lessons where I, did, because I practiced so good, I nailed it. He would go, oh, just give me half the bread because you did you, you nailed it so hard. Like he wasn't teaching because he needed the money. He was just doing it because he loved to teach. And so I really took a lot away from working with Ed and I apply that to my students and I've get great results from that, you know. Um, but I don't want to do it every time because then they're going to be expect, you know, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. have the same impact. Right. But I do like to give a lot of, you know, positive. And, and the other thing that I'll, when I mentioned mirroring, um, I will have my students uh, change their physiology. If I see a student is all slumped over and their and, and, and their bodies is, is too downward, I will have them put their hands over their head and shout, "I got this. I'm going to crush it like a bug. Right. Um, you know, I'm going to kill it. I, you know, I have them say things like that. Yes, you know, this is my day." And that really, so when they, when it changes their physiology and then I have them take a few deep breaths when they either, if they're going to the drums or they're going to piano, they play entirely differently. So, uh, changing the physiology is a great way to motivate a student as well. Yeah. It's, it sounds like that you're very different from a lot of other teachers and educators. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of, well, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to study with so many great musicians over the years. And I've been able to take little bits and pieces from all these different teachers and apply it to what I do. And, uh, you know, I'm really passionate about it. I love it. You know, I never get up in the morning going, Oh, I got to do this gig today. I, it's, it's like, I'm really into it. And, uh, you know, I think uh, teaching is like anything else. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And that's one of the reasons why I try and ask myself really good questions, you know, because if I'm focused in on giving, doing the best I can for each student, the time flies by, 
and it's just a win-win for everybody. Have you ever heard of the term transference as is it used in uh, autism? I'm, I'm not really familiar with that. Okay. No. Um, again, going back to my experience with working with uh, students, I had uh, the young man who couldn't hold a pencil. And he would take spelling tests, just like the rest of the class. He would have to spell the word. And then he'd write a sentence. And it was, it kind of scared me because the sentence he would write would be the same thing in my head as he's writing, would be writing it. And wow. It, it was like, I, and I didn't say anything for the longest time, and I finally talked to the special ed uh, person in the school, and she's like, yes, there are some people who believe there is some transference that happens when autistic students work with um, a paraprofessional or a teacher, you know, over a period of time. So, yeah, it was, it, it was very eerie. Again, I was not manipulating. All I uh -huh. was do, doing was providing the pressure to hold the pencil and to see the same word that would be in my head all of a sudden go down on a piece of paper was, it was a little, I don't know, it was, a, for lack of a better term, a little bit spooky for me. <laughs> I was like, you know, I first couple of times I was even like, am I applying some type of pressure that's forcing him to write, you know? Uh -huh. And, you know, it was like, and then once I had that discussion, it was, it was made a little bit clearer to me. Um, and speaking of touch, uh, your approach is multi-sensory. You know, when I worked in that setting, they talked about, you know, tactile or touch or auditory, you know, the listening. Uh, your, your, the way you do things seems to be really built on or around a lot of that. Yeah. All try, the, the thing is, is that um, with this population anyway, the more senses that are involved is really what provides the cognitive development. Because there's a difference between saying an answer and hitting it on a drum. So it's the redundancy of information that really what provides you know, the, the positive results. And um, and also no, the great thing the other great thing about multisensory learning is uh, the research shows that it's better for retention. So the student's going to remember what they're working on a lot deeper because they brought all these senses into the equation. Right. I mean, we used to. And this may seem kind of, maybe sound a little by, uh, barbaric to you, but like sometimes they just like to, like the young man, he would like squeeze his own hand to calm himself down. Sure, that's common. And he would or like be rolled up in like a small rug, you know, an area rug, just for the, you know, the pressure. Mm-hmm. And, um, does uh, that play a part in your teaching at all? No, that, that doesn't. But I, I've heard that sort of thing is very common. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these um, students really like the weighted blankets and such. They find it very right. comforting. But no, that, that I haven't really worked with that at all.
but uh, as, as far as like percussion instruments, like drums and other things that are struck, um, is that something they really like to do? Um, most do. And, uh, you know, like I, I, some students, I've had students before where we've done West African drumming, um, independent of the product, the you know, rhythmic arts project protocol where we're working on academic concepts. But, uh, you know, just, you know, well, for a lot of my students, the young men, you know, a lot of them, they the majority of their, their service providers are women. Right. So when they get behind a drum set, I'm like, okay, let's rock, let's do this. It's a whole other thing for them. And I, I think they just like the ability to kind of just do this, you know, this, this drumming. So, you know, working in that field, what is your biggest challenge? With the students. Um, well, because every student is in a different place, I think the challenges are different for each student. Um, but, you know, I, I try not to look at, 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 at that stuff and, 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 and just kind of meet them where they are. Um, sometimes uh, it seems like the biggest challenge is working with their parent. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not the student, it's the parent mm -hmm. that's getting in the way. Um, I, I, I don't know. You know uh, challenges. Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I don't really spend a lot of energy thinking about what the challenge is because I'm so focused in on the result that I'm going for. Right. Yeah. And, and I totally understand the parent thing because for – uh, 25 years of youth and high school uh, coaching. Believe me, parents was a, parents were always a bigger problem than the young athlete ever was. So I totally get that. You know, yeah. you know, and I understand they want to advocate for their for their child and whatnot. But sometimes your you know your advocation just becomes a barrier itself because the you know, I would have children. I, I would have parents constantly talking to me, and I'd kind of look over at their child, and their child's got their head down and looking away, and it's like, you know, why are you embarrassing me again? You know, knock it off. And I, you know, some even though parents are trying to do what's right for their child, they can be they, as you stated, they can be the barrier. Yeah. But, you know, I try not to think about, you know, focusing on that too much. And I, I, with, I've gotten uh, – I've, I've learned some skills along the way to just be more diplomatic with the parents. Um, one of the things that I, I like to do if, if I find that the parent might be kind of interfering with the work a bit, I'll, I'll ask them to consider. You know, I won't tell them what I, I'd like them to do. I'll, I'll say, have you considered this? That's how I'll start. Or right. would you consider Mm -hmm. And I, I get better results with that. Right. But, you know, most of my parents are great. You know. Are, are you the only online uh, drum uh, kit teacher? For, as, far, for, 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 as far as I know, I think I'm the only one um, in the country that's doing this to the level that I am. Um, I, I, there's – I'm – I don't really think there's a whole lot of, of, of teachers actually teaching the piano in the manner that I'm teaching it to the special needs community online. 
Um, I use an alternative notation system where the notes are colored and we put colored rings on the fingers of the student. And uh, that makes it much easier for them to read the notes because they're not navigating, you know, Western notation and uh, allows them to listen to the music a lot easier. And uh, I, I know that I'm the only, I know I, I could pretty much guarantee with beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm probably the only one in the country that's, that teaches West African rhythms right. to um, students online. Um, and I, in the process of really uh, beefing up my uh, YouTube channel and uh, over the next few months, I'm going to be putting uh, video content on my YouTube channel every week. Right now I have about 15 videos on my YouTube channel, which is special needs music. And you can find that on YouTube. But if parents are listening and they're interested, um, in every every few weeks I'm going to be putting exercises on that on that my YouTube channel that they can do with their child. So how do how do you keep your students moving forward and um, progressing and learning more and helping also with their autism? Well, there's a few questions there. Uh, with, you know, de de depending on what, what, what the student, what, what we're studying, um, with the piano, uh, you know, I encourage that. Well I, 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 well, I always try to meet the student where they are. That's the first thing, because I don't want to overwhelm them, you know, like I said earlier. So, um, like, for, for example, I have one student that's really crushing it on the piano, and... Uh, one of the things I do to challenge him is I say, okay, well, I want you to start singing and humming more of these notes. And I'll, 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 I'll say, look, I want you to memorize a line. And if they memorize that line really good, I'm, I'm going to say, okay, now I want you to memorize two lines. So I'm, I, 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 the objective is to try to get them to do things that they're not accustomed to doing, but not overwhelm them. So that provides a lot of motivation for them, I think, because they see that I'm challenging them and they really inherently want to be challenged. They all do. So that's one of the ways I make it interesting. Um, with the drum set, same thing. Um, you know, uh, I, I set up my drum kit left-handed, play left-handed so they can, most of my students are right-handed. Right. And so I set up my kit left-handed so they can mirror me and I use phonics with them so they can more easily play the phrasing. So, for example, with the quarter notes, that will be slice. With eighth notes, that'll be pizza. And 16th notes will be pepperoni. Slice, slice, pizza, pepperoni, or pepperoni, 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 pizza, for example. Those right. would be fills. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, we work on playing uh, as if we're going to – I teach every – well, you know, I started uh, boxing uh, years ago. And I was the only white guy in this uh, <laughs> this Latin gym in East L.A. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. And uh, I, the, I don't know if you the, if you saw the Million Dollar Babies movie. No, but I've heard about it. Okay, well that was based on my trainer, oh, Deb okay. Huntley, and he was my trainer, and he was no joke. I worked with him five days a week for an hour and a half. I worked in that gym an hour and a half, five days a week. But the interesting thing was when I started boxing. They started me as if I was going to be fighting Floyd Mayweather in a month, okay? Right. They didn't say, we're going to spend a month doing this and we're going to do that. So one of the things I do with all my drum set students is I look at, like, I'm getting them ready to play in a band. 
we're not just here learning some rhythms or learning how to play a fill. I'm, I'm, that's how I approach all my all my students, is if they're gonna, they got a gig at Madison Square Garden next month, we got to get them ready for it. Yeah, I, I, I had a um, – for two years I took uh, kickboxing uh, uh-huh. just for, you know, for fitness. And, um, you know, I thought, yeah, this will be interesting. You know, go in and – and all of a sudden, you can just see we're progressing to the point the instructor was like, okay, if some people want to, like, get into sparring, let me know. And we can set up a sparring group. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. I, that, that was like, that's, a, that's probably the cutoff for me. You know, I don't want, you know, even though sparring is not that, you know, like, full contact, I, I, I was like... <laughs> I don't like the idea of getting kicked in the head either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of shape did you get in after that? Oh, I was in pretty good shape. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Between the punching and the kicking and all sure. this stuff, the, you know, and there was, you know, there was running and there was, uh, you know, we were strengthening our core and doing all type of other things. It just wasn't showing up just to, punch a bag and kick a bag it, it there was a purpose you know we were building up we were building up our bodies and we were building up to uh to move through the course so yeah well boxers um this has been you know they've done a lot of studies that show that boxers are the best conditioned athletes in the world yeah i can believe that yeah because they're using so many different muscle groups, but they're also a lot of cardio stuff going on at the same time. So, oh, the endurance, the right. endurance is, yeah. You know, their their rounds only maybe at the three minutes, but what other sport are you doing something constantly for three minutes? Yeah, even in ice hockey, they get right. a break. You know, the puck goes down at the end of the rink; they can take a breather. Right, or you know, <laughs> yeah. your shift is no more than yeah. 45 seconds before, you know, the lactic acid builds up in your legs and coach is yelling to get your butt off the ice. So, um, believe it or not, that was one of the sports I coached for 15 years. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, to wrap things up here, is there something I didn't touch or ask about? Um, we, we, we covered a lot of the bases. Right. You know? Um, one thing I'd just like, I'd like to mention, if there's any parents listening, I'd like to, you know, throw down a challenge that they, uh, consider, um, giving their children more positive reinforcement. That's my closing thought. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And I should have asked you this question before you Uh (laughs) made that statement, because that was a great statement to end things on but you were talking about learning left-handed so the students can mirror you you can also probably play right-handed so you get that yeah. odd left-handed student okay just yeah yeah i'm right-handed okay <laughs> i just turn everything left-handed because most you know they're most of them are right-handed so is that was that hard for you uh well you know once you learn to play jazz drumming you can pretty much play anything is that different is learning jazz over like being a rock drummer or an rb drummer you know i I think there's a a a real uh discipline to whatever 
kind of music you're drumming to. That has its own unique challenges. But in terms of uh, the use of the, your body and independence, um, jazz drumming kind of takes the cake. And uh, if, if I get a parent or somebody who wants to get in contact you, with you, how would they do that? They can do that. I've got two drum two websites. One is drumlessonsforautism.com. Mm-hmm. And then my other website is uh, specialneedsmusic.com. And then, and then they can also find Special Needs Music on YouTube. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at your uh, specialneedsmusic.com website as we speak. So, um, and I take it that it's um, been very uh, fruitful for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, I, I I just decided in the last month that I was going to put more on my YouTube channel for parents. Um, you know, cause, uh, there are, sometimes I get contacted from people in countries where the, the time zone issue is, is so, so big. And I like, I just like the idea of being service and having, you know, content out there for parents to utilize with their kids. Right. So okay. I'm really going to be boosting that up. I got it all set up now here at home. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, again, is, uh, I see there's a uh, email address, a special need music at gmail.com also. Right. That's right. Special needs music at gmail.com. And I'm really good about returning emails. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can... I'm a match. I'm a match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell because as soon as I called, you knew it was me and you, you were ready to roll. So today. Well, JB, thank you for uh, you know, the opportunity to speak today. Not a problem. And uh, share my message with your, your listeners. No, I, it, as soon as I saw it, it was like, okay, I hope this guy responds back because, it, uh, like I spent, uh, said, the two and a half, three years I spent working with autistic children really touched me, really moved me. And um, it's always been an interest of mine where if I see something on autism, autism I will stop and uh, look at what's going on and uh, kind of continue my education on things so so this has been very helpful for me and to uh, continue that well yeah, thanks so much for having me i appreciate it all right again this has been stephen flynn autistic music teacher here on the jb's low-tech podcast in pennsylvania a teenage girl that was about to turn 18 was driving her brand new car home when she looked down to check a text message and struck a tree killing herself and injuring a friend in the car The average message takes 4.6 seconds to create. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. Please don't drive while intoxicated or allow your friends and family to do so. No text message or phone call is worth dying for. Find Mike Bryant at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Mike Bryant, seeking justice for the injured.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. It's that time where I kind of empty my brain for the week and tell you guys what I've been thinking about, what's been on the mind of JB. And it's been good weather. We are finally getting into the 50s and 60s this weekend. And as I predicted to some friends, we were going to jump from that Instead of being in the 40s and 50s for a while, we were going to jump from from that directly into the 70s. Tomorrow, it will be warmer here than it will be in Augusta, Georgia, where the Masters is being played. And, of course, that's been on my mind, too, as I always. I've tried to play golf. I'm not that good at it, so I stopped. But I do love to enjoy to sit and watch those who can play it well. And um, I'm not going to mix words. I'm always going to be a Tiger fan, but then I'm always a Rory fan and other people. And uh, this whole split of regular tour and live just shows again how more divided we are in everything. So I guess the biggest thing is outside of nice weather is can we just stop being divided over every little stupid thing in the world? Well, with that saying that, I will wrap up today's podcast with reminding folks, tell a friend, uh, keep listening. You know the outlets, Podbean and um, Apple Podcasts. Until the next time, thank you for listening here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. J B is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. I am Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django. J B. Damn Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J B. Our great Negro sex machine.